What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Closing in on the weekend. Got a lot to do before then, though. This is a huge show, genuinely. Today we really mean it. We really do have a big show. Listen, listen. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. He's here too. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, legendary investor Ron Barron believes a strategy that goes beyond tomorrow is key to a positive outlook today. The next 50 years is going to be similar to the last 50 years. That would be 25 times your money if you invest now. Tesla's new chairman, Robin Denholm, took Elon's job, but she's still one of his biggest fans. The way he runs that that company is, is phenomenal, so in all aspects. Davos in the desert. Saudi Arabia's annual investment conference kicks off next week. Who's going, who's not, and why it matters. Nations and happens to companies, they don't have permanent enemies. You know, they don't have permanent friends. They just have permanent interests. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Friday, October 25th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand under by in three, two, one. Hugh Andrew. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Becky Quick is with us. She is live from the Barron Investment Conference with the legendary Ron Barron. We're going to get to them in just a minute. Ron Barron is a buy and hold investor whose long-term strategy has made him a legend on Wall Street. Every year, CNBC goes to his investors' conference. This year, and many other years, Becky Quick goes, and so does Katie, your usual podcast host. They cut up this morning off camera. We're at Lincoln Center in New York City today, and this is where the Barron Investment uh, Conference is taking place. It's an annual conference that we've been coming to since 2008. So we've been longtime, uh, longtime participants in just coming along for the ride and seeing what Ron has to offer. Amazing thing is, uh, Ron brings lots of big entertainment. We're at Lin- Lincoln Center, so in the past he's brought guests like Barbara Streisand or Bruce Springsteen or Paul McCartney, which he said was his favorite. Um, but the big deal and the reason so many of the shareholders who come here, the Barron shareholders come, is because he brings up his managers and they give their take on the world. And then they bring up the CEOs, a lot of the the biggest companies that the Barron's invested in. And and so it's really kind of a, a mix of entertainment and, and, and really a, a view of what's happening in the economy and what's happening in business. So, so Ron's whole perspective is buy and hold stocks for a long time. He invests in businesses and he invests in people. You know, some of the people that we've met here over the years have been uh, people like Elon Musk, who's the head of Tesla, the creator of Tesla. We've met Kevin Plank, who was the founder and CEO of Under Armour. Um, he finds people who he thinks are at dynamic, who have big ideas, and then he watches the companies and watches the markets. Now, he said buy and hold for a long time. That doesn't mean buy and hold forever, like Buffett likes to do, Warren Buffett likes to do. Under Armour, Kevin Plank, he was a big investor in that company. But there was a time a few years ago where he said, okay, it's time to sell. What's your big takeaway on Ron's message for investors right now, particularly with the way the markets are? You know, if you look around, it's a pretty turbulent time. His take is that this is an incredible time to get into the markets. He thinks people are far too pessimistic. 
our host at the Barron Investment Conference, Ron Barron, Barron Capital's chairman and CEO. Let's talk a little bit about your theme this year. It's called What's Next? Why what's next and what is next? Um, so what's next is that, so we're looking for faster growth in the future than in the past. And, but what's next is the- Faster I- growth for the economy, faster growth for the stock market. What do you mean? Economy. And, and what I think is that when you think about uh, the turmoil that's taking place in the stock market now and everyone is afraid, uh, that's, you know, and people have higher amounts of cash than they've ever had before. And in Europe, they have negative interest rates. People are so concerned as 18 central banks can't agree on what to do there. Uh, the interest rates in the United States are, have been going down of late. The way I think about it, though, is that the stock market today is pretty much the same valuation that it was in 1969. It's 16.6 times earnings. It was 16.5 times earnings then. Uh, then was amidst turmoil. You had the cities on fire, the National Guard in the streets uh, trying to keep law and order. You had the Vietnam War protests. Uh, so you had women rights uh, you know, uh, protesting. So, so everything was a mess. Uh, but, but the thing that really sticks in my, and the assassinations of President Kennedy, I was talking in my office about, I have a lot of younger people in my office, and I said, tell me about the assassinations in the 1960s. And people said, well, John Kennedy. I said, anyone else? And they said, I don't know. It was Martin Luther King in 1968 and Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. They tried to get George Wallace. So, so there was turmoil then. There was a concern that, this, that the country was going to survive. But uh, the stock market then was 1,000 on the Dow Jones. It's now 26 or 27,000, so 26 times. Uh, the economy then was 850 billion. It's now 21.3 trillion. That's up 25 times. So all you had to do was believe that this country was going to survive and invest then, and you would have made 25 times your money. And so I think that what's going to happen in the next uh, 50 years, of course, I'll be 126 by then, and you can reach me at barrenfunds.com. <laughs> they will know where I am. And, but, but I'm thinking about uh, the, next, uh, f- the next 50 years is going to be similar to the last 50 years. That would be 25 times your money if you invest now. And, and, and even better is that interest rates today are 1.5%, 1.6% for 10 years. They're normally 4.5% for 10 years. Uh, you have platform investments now. So it used to be when I was young and you wanted to make money, you'd build a factory for a million dollars or a hotel, and then maybe you'd make 100000 or 150000 after you take the risk of putting up a million. And uh, so, uh, and, but now you've, you've uh, come into a capital light business. Mm-hmm. You have technology. So therefore, other people are giving you money, writing it off. Uh, you have a platform that you built. You could be a licensor, or people could be using your business in the cloud. And then all of a sudden, you start getting revenues, and that revenue gives you 70, 80, 90% margin. That's worth more than an earnings per share company. Without having put up the capital, the right. capital <coughs> yeah, people finance risk you. on for, the, for some of these yeah. things too, so you can do it. Exactly, so it's, it's capital light, low interest rates, and the technology. So technology is making uh, businesses uh, grow faster, uh, because, and, and also uh, it's, it's making their costs be lower. And then uh, knowledge. Knowledge is growing at the fastest pace that it's ever grown. And it used to be um, 100 years ago that knowledge doubled every 100 years. And then after World War II, it was every 25 years. And now it's every 18 months. And with the Internet of Things, it's going, knowledge is going to double, uh, according to IBM, every 8 hours or 12 hours. Knowledge. 
humankind. I, I love that, what you're saying, Ron, but it, when, when you look at our growth that we've seen to this point, a lot of people say our economy is just stuck in a slower growth economy. We're never going to be able to grow at a faster pace. We've seen it pick up a little bit over the last several years, but w- why isn't it reflected in the numbers? Why isn't the economic growth stronger? Because you're right, information technology, all of these different ways of increasing our productivity, our knowledge, it's not reflected in the government numbers right now. Well, people are afraid, well, you're in one of these, the economy doesn't go like this, yeah. it goes like this. And, uh, and, and so as a result of that, whenever it goes down, people say, oh my God, this is it, this is the end, I better get out. And so all these people, so I watch remote show in the morning and everyone talks about, well, the stock market, is going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to go sideways, the economy, I'm worried about a recession. Everyone's worried about something. And, but the big thing to remember is what I was talking about before, if you invested in midst turmoil in 1969, you would have made 25 times your money. I think the 6.5% annual growth is going to continue on average for the next 50 years, at least. And then what that means is that Dow Jones, which is now 26 or 27,000, up 25 times, that's 650,000 on the Dow. So when people talk about, and and the economy, which is 21 trillion, it'll be 500 trillion. Mm -hmm. So basically, when people talk about, well, the economy's a little slower, the stock market, you know, I think it's gonna go down 1,000 points or 500 points or 100 points. But if you're thinking about, it's now 26,000, and it's going to be in 50 years, you know, for young people, it's going to be 650,000 or 600,000. You know, it's just compounding. I was just asked, well, what's your biggest investment? And I said, I'm not sure. I think it's uh, CoStar. Right. And so, you know, 15, commercial real estate business. Yeah, it's a, it's a database. Yeah. And we're, I was just, uh, we invested in it 15 years ago. 15 years. People are thinking about tomorrow, 15 years. And what happened is that it's up 40 times. So we invested at $15 and now 600 or 550, whatever the heck it is. Ron Barron is, you guessed it, yet another Squawk Box billionaire, which means we had to ask him about the highly debated wealth tax. If you recall, the other day, we spoke to a different billionaire investor about said wealth tax and billionaires in general. Here's Leon Cooperman on air with us last week. Stop portraying billionaires as criminals. Our economy would be better off if we had more billionaires. Just tax them. Becky asked Ron Barron about this exact issue and what Lee Cooperman has been up to in the weeks since he said it. He just got into it with Elizabeth Warren the other day. He said, I think, to Ben White from Politico, um, this is the effing American dream and she's blanking all over it. Um, Warren responded yesterday saying, come on, uh, Leon, why don't you just give back a little bit more? Why don't you uh, give back some of what you've been given? What would your response be to that? Well, Lee is an incredibly generous man. And I think he's giving away, he's already committed to giving away at least half of his, of his assets. And I think he's probably giving away more than that. His dad was a plumber, uh, died when he was lugging a refrigerator up a flight of stairs. He's a really good guy. A uh, very generous man, very helpful. Food is a, a, for the poor is a big uh, charity. So he gives away a lot. And if you live in the Northeast uh, and uh, you have a high income, your tax rate is high, very, very high. What's your tax rate? 52, 53%, something like that. It's over 50. And uh, so. That's your federal tax rate or that's everything all That's included? everything. Everything, yeah. Because your state tax isn't deductible. Right. And not, not including real estate taxes, I pay those in addition. Right. But you pay a lot in your salary against your salary. And so, so they're trying to say, I think, that if, you're, if you have saved, and are judicious about the way you spend and invest it, 
uh, to create business, a business for uh, that's benefiting a lot of families, uh, then uh, then that is should be taxed more highly than if you just take your income and spend it and buy a boat or a house or a vacation. So, so they're trying to encourage more consumption. So Bernie says you shouldn't have any billionaires. And Elizabeth Warren says if you're successful because this country's allowed you to be successful, well, then you shouldn't be as successful as you are. You should have some of your money coming back, which just means that you're going to be taking some of those jobs that you would have created otherwise and give them away. Well, let's explain to people who don't know you. You are a long-term, long-time Democrat. You've supported Democratic candidates throughout this, a little different than Lee and some of his political leaders. Um, if they need to raise more revenue, what would you suggest they do? If a wealth tax is not the right idea, why don't you do a VAT? So, so in Europe, they tried to do a wealth tax and it didn't work. People figured out how to avoid it. Uh, the lawyers in private practice are real good at figuring out how to do all sorts of things uh, that are legal. So, uh, so all you're going to do is encourage uh, people. Uh, and a value-added tax, by the way, would would catch that's, people who are spending it. It, it, it goes on consumption. consumption. Now, what, what some people say about that is it's it's a regressive tax because those at the lowest part of the income scale have to spend all of their money just to just to survive. So, so I think that, so I'm not, I, when the president got elected, I know him. And, president Trump. Uh, yes. And he said, so what do you, the, the, right after the election, he said, what do you think I should do? I said, I don't know what you should do. And, uh, you know, that's not my gag. I, I, I just think that, um, that, and I've been, I said, I'm a Democrat my whole life. And I always will be. And my grandfather was an immigrant, uh, my mother's dad. I, he once told me he came from Russia. They had to leave the pogroms and everything. And, and he said, you know, Ronnie, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I said, so why? Why? He was working for James Roosevelt, who was the president's son as running for mayor in Miami. And he said, well, uh, they all just take from you. Uh, the Democrats just give you a little bit back. That's, that was his theory. And uh, so, so, so I think that you should be encouraging people to invest. And uh, you should make it as fair and equitable in all businesses possible. But it's not my job to figure out what policy should be. I just figure out how I can do the best for, uh, for our employees and for our clients. And whatever it is, it is. And I don't think that Elizabeth Warren would be successful in getting, it doesn't matter how many people are going to be elected or Democrats, she's not going to be successful if she were chosen president as uh, uh, in getting through the policies that she's proposing. I think they're pretty nuts. Up next on Squawk Pod, from constant chirps to virtual crickets, Elon Musk's Twitter journey with Tesla's new chairman and Tesla's biggest bull, Ron Barron. One of the directors had told me a year ago that he had come up with a chart when Elon tweeted what the stock had done and when he hadn't tweeted what the stock had done. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 
You probably remember Elon Musk's infamous tweets about taking Tesla private in August of last year. You might also remember the battle with the SEC that followed and the eventual settlement that removed Musk from his role as chairman of Tesla's board. So what happened next and who took his place? That would be the woman you'll hear from next, Robin Denholm. She was already a board member when she was named chair, so it wasn't a stretch. But that doesn't mean everyone was thrilled about the appointment. On air with CNBC shortly after the announcement, a wealth manager explained why he was still wary of the Tesla stock. I think it's great that there's a new chairman in place for checks and balances, but the choice doesn't ease my concern about the instability of management. Robin has been part of the Musk team for quite some time. She's a Musk loyalist, and that suggests to me that she might not be the best person to keep him in check. I think he needs a better babysitter, so we're still staying away. Others were more optimistic, suggesting that Robin would be the adult in the room at Tesla. Few have been as consistently bullish as Ron Barron, though. He's been a shareholder for five years, and he's been confident in his investment throughout. In 2017... In the case of Tesla, uh, I have this long-term view. I think we're going to, you know, 15 years, we're going to make a huge amount of money, 30 times our money, and uh, 20 times our money. In 2018... I think Tesla, we're going to make 20 times our money. Because... We, because the opportunity is so enormous and people are saying, gee, they're spending a lot of cash. Of course they're spending cash, they're building factories. In March of this year. I haven't bought stock for myself for 17 years. Uh, this is the first stock that I told the board I would like to make an investment on behalf of our firm, Barron Capital, in this company. I did it for Barron Capital because I said, gee, I can afford to lose the investment that I have in, in, Barron, you know, in this company. Uh, but I can't afford not to make a billion dollars. And still today, literally this morning. You have been a longtime bull, a longtime believer in Tesla. Have you sold any of your position or None. did you hold all of it the entire all time that it was down? All of it. And what did you think of the earnings yesterday? Well, they were good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the what stock I got a huge run. I think short sellers lost about a billion dollars just yesterday. However, short sellers since the beginning of the year still are up about 11%. Just, yes. This is just um, So this is the whole idea about investing and seeing through what's happening at this point in time. Here's Becky sitting with Ron Barron and Tesla's chairman Robin Denholm in a very busy Lincoln Center. Andrew and Joe are, of course, joining from the studio in Times Square. Rob, I want to thank you very much for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Elon, how the two of you work together, and what's happened over the course of the last year? Well, Becky, um, I've been on the board for five years before, uh, as of this point in time, and so uh, we formed a good working relationship, and, and actually I think it's um, it's a joy to be in that environment, both from a Tesla perspective, but also with working with, with Elon as well. So you knew him for a long time beforehand. How did your relationship change or just the way you work together change as you took on the role of chairman? How often do you see him? How much? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously we have our regular board meetings, but uh, but we also have conversations in between. And so they're, uh, they, they're relatively regular. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there are more than others and, you know, it's a it's a good working relationship. You are uh, somebody who's got an incredibly impressive background, both in technology and in auto companies as well. You worked at Toyota uh, most recently before you took this job. Uh, you were the chief operating officer at Telstra. So you've got a, a very good working knowledge base, somebody who has looked over so many different issues and, and had so much experience. What types of conversations do you have with Elon? What, what types of things do you talk about now? 
Yeah, I mean, my background in terms of uh, both operational and financial uh, roles, and I've zigzagged between the two, uh, irrespective of uh, which company. Uh, and I've always been very focused on making sure that we're driving long-term shareholder value for, for uh, the company. And so, uh, as a board member, I take that responsibility very seriously, and as do the rest of my peers. So Elon is totally focused, laser focused, on cost of operations. And what he does, in my, you know, my observation, he listens. So when you say something to him, it makes sense, he listens. In fact, he has his teams of young people throughout the organization telling him constantly, Elon, and, and uh, Jerome, for example, will have regular meetings with his staff and say, what can we do better? And then he says, if they come up with an idea, they show it to Elon, and then he does it. And so presumably, he listens to you as well for, and this is for Larry Ellison as well for ideas that you. Yeah, I think um, you know the the board's got a, a great background in many different industries. To Ron's point, and I think um, uh, you know I think the the testament is any uh, CEO who actually can continue to grow a company the way uh, Elon has with Tesla is going to listen to all all points of view that are going to help the company move forward. Well, I'll ask both of you this question: Are you glad that he's not tweeting? as much. <laughs> I think, um, you know, he is a very disciplined individual and, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, the way he runs that, that company is, is phenomenal, so in all aspects. You know, when you talk about listening, then one of the directors had told me a year ago that he had come up with a chart and the chart was when Elon tweeted what the stock had done and when he hadn't tweeted what the stock had done. It outperformed when he wasn't tweeting? Yes. And so basically, <laughs> you tell him you know, that? about yeah, this, object, this director did. And so talking about listening, so he listens to Robin, he listens to this other director, he listens to everyone. Hey Robin, I wanted to just ask about China. The factory in China that Tesla uh, is, is putting together, who owns that factory and what's the relationship with the Chinese government? So Tesla owns the factory, um, and the reason why uh, the companies built that factory is uh, we see a huge opportunity for growth in uh, in China. Uh, it is the largest market today for mid-sized premium uh, vehicles, both in terms of uh, sedans and SUVs. And as we bring that factory online, and you heard on the earnings call that actually we're in trial production today, only 10 months after we broke ground uh, in that site, which is a phenomenal achievement. Um, we plan to uh, produce vehicles in, in China for the Chinese market and take advantage of that opportunity that we see in the growth there. Robin, just in terms of the ramp up there, we, we did have an analyst on yesterday who said, yeah, it looks pretty promising what you're doing in China, but that in the past, some of what Tesla's done has been to ramp up and bring a lot of employees and get things up and then maybe scale back as you see what demand actually shapes up to be. He pointed out that that's not the way it works in China, that if you are working with Chinese companies, with Chinese employees, you don't have that flexibility. What, what do you say to that? And what does that lead you to believe just in terms of profitability or how you're able to be flexible in that market? Yeah, I think uh, what I would say is all of the learnings that we've had in terms of ramping uh, the company, both with Model 3 and, the, and S and X, uh, have been applied to China. And so the team on the ground, whether it's on the tooling side, whether it's on the uh, workforce side, or even just how we interact with our suppliers have all been uh, 
um, put into place as we're uh, building the China uh, factory. And so the team's done a phenomenal job. Uh, Ron mentioned Jerome before. He and, and the local team in China have been working hand in glove to make sure that we take uh, advantage of all of the things that we've learned over the last few years. We were also talking about scaling back this first plant. Well, just making sure you have enough employees to get off the ground and then maybe changing the size of the employment group. But, but once their you first it out. operation, which is just opening, yeah. is uh, to build, to build 3,000 cars a week. That's 150,000 cars a year. On this conference call yesterday, or the day before? Day before. So yeah, e Elon said they were going to triple that amount. So basically, instead of doing 3,000 cars a week, they're on the way to 10,000 cars a week or more in China. Let, let me just ask you about a couple of those things, Robin, because um, I said earlier that sometimes Elon overpromises and underdelivers. Ron corrected me and said, no, he overpromises and then delivers just a little later than you thought you were going to get it. <laughs> but let me ask you about a couple of those numbers. Uh, the delivery goal between 360,000 and 400,000 vehicles, uh, is that, that's the full year vehicle forecast. Do you think that that's an achievable goal? Yeah, so, so the way I think about it is um, to achieve what Tesla has achieved over the, over the last five years, over the last 10 years, you have to set audacious goals and big goals to actually, and then have everybody in the company work like crazy to get there. And again, if I, if I look back over the last five years, nobody had predicted that Tesla would be where they are today in terms of producing 97,000 vehicles a quarter and, or building a factory in China in 10 months. So the team is awesome and I think part of it is setting those very big goals so that the, the company can rally and get behind them and move forward and move the whole industry forward. Robin, I want to thank you so much for your time being thank so you. generous with us. Ron, I want to thank you for your time and joining us here. Thanks for inviting us. Um, it's been amazing having you here. We really appreciate it. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, one year after the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, Washington and Wall Street returned to Riyadh. Why this year's Davos in the Desert is still so controversial. There was a, a big part of the public that actually applauded a lot of these executives last year. People considered them to be statesmen when, when there was a view that, that somehow those in Washington were not. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand, Andrew, by in five seconds. Four, Welcome back to Squawk three, Pod. Here's Andrew two, Ross Sorkin. One, up and Andrew, cue. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Joining us in studio, Walter Isaacs, an advisory partner at Perella Weinberg, and of course, a CNBC contributor and author extraordinaire. 
The Future Investment Initiative, an annual Saudi Arabian economic conference, kicks off next week. And a lot has changed from a year ago. Last year, U.S. political and business leaders skipped the conference amid international outrage over the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi was murdered in Istanbul last October, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is believed to have been complicit. A year later, human rights advocates continued to critique the kingdom for failing to hold senior Saudi officials responsible. However, a number of Washington officials and Wall Street executives will be returning to Riyadh this year, including Jared Kushner, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, and senior executives from Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, and BlackRock. New York Times reporter and CNBC contributor Kate Kelly joined Squawk on set to discuss the moral, political, and business quandaries surrounding this year's Davos in the Desert. Kate, I went to this. You, we, we both went We were there together to, in 2017. To 2017. Yeah. Um, got out of it uh, last year. That's right. Uh, after the Khashoggi uh, murder. And uh, a lot of executives said they weren't going. But now everybody's going back. Yeah, it does seem like what a difference a year makes in, in the case of Wall Street here. And you'll recall last year, I, I believe it was Larry Fink, and, and this was echoed by Jamie Dimon, that this pulling out of the conference is not going to make a huge difference. That was sort of the mentality. And as you can see, Jamie's not going this year, but Larry Fink is, right. and other senior people are. You know, according to Axios, uh, Mike Corbett from Citigroup is going, right. Ray Dalio from Bridgewater. We've confirmed others, Dina Powell McCormick. Um, uh, John Waldron, right. the president of Goldman, Goldman Sachs, Sachs, is going for the first time. So what does this say, though? What does this say about last year? What does this say about this year? What does this say about our relationship with the Saudis? What does it say about the moral issues involved in so, so corporations? So I talked to Stephen Cook from the Council on Foreign Relations, among others, and he said, look, people never really stop doing business with Saudi. They want to be there. They want to continue the relationship. And going to the Future Investment Initiative is one indication of that. Um, the Aramco IPO, you know, much discussed for literally years now. It's a, it's a critical part of Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030. Um, and people think it's actually going to work out. It's going to come to market maybe even as early as next month. And this could be the biggest IPO in history. Right. So you've got a lot of major international banks, including Citi, right. JPM, uh, Goldman, and Morgan Stanley working on it. So, Walter, yeah. though, what do you think? There was, a, um, there was a, a big part of the public that actually applauded a lot of these executives last year. And, and you wrote about it quite and a I wrote bit. About you it and one I was of the later. And, no, and, and yeah. people considered them to be statesmen when, when there was a view that, that yeah. somehow those in Washington were not. Yes. Was well, this just you know, show and PR spin? And is it again this year that you're no. not going and everybody else is back and you'll go next year? You give it one more year to sort of well, simmer? No, that's, but but it's like that's a, by the way, it's a genuine question. I don't know the answer. Are you going some, next year? I, I don't know whether you, I... Will you ever go back? That's a good question. I don't know. It I, is a good think, question because not... Metternich said, you know, nations and happens to companies, they don't have permanent enemies. You know, they don't have permanent friends. They just have permanent interests. After a while, you put something in a penalty box, but you have to say, okay, I'm going to now do business with China, I'm going to do business with Saudi Arabia, whatever. You can't permanently do it. I do think that because the Saudis, you know, have Aramco coming on and right. everything else, people are a little bit too craven and moving back a little bit too fast to a kingdom that should be kept at arm's length a little bit more. But, yeah, of course people are going to go there. I, I think there's a legitimate business ethics question here, though. I mean, on the one hand, you had this horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and, and there's a clear indication that Saudi officials 
were involved in it, if not ordered it. And then even before that, don't forget, you had Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, among other elites, locked up at the very same Ritz-Carlton right. where you and I were having tea okay, at so the conference the, in 2017. The business ethics as demonstrated by the NBA and Nike with China was impressive to you in terms of the business eth ethics? Well, no, what I was going to say, Joe, is... Everything is, you got to be cynical to look at the business world and understand that in the real world how things... We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to trade with anyone in the, on the entire globe if, we, if everyone who murdered... Right. What about... China. How could you possibly do any business with China? And here we've been benefiting. Well, I think there's going to be, there could be growing fallout with China. I mean, especially, obviously, you have the tariff well, fights, but then there are also concerns right. about human rights there. But, but what I was going to say is there is an argument, and some people would make it, that you're better off being at the table. Right. And Larry Fink has said this. He said, look, if you guys want to be global actors, you have to act like you're on the global stage. And having a dialogue and being a business partner is, is perhaps part of helping to modernize I mean, in the, Middle the economy. East, you, you look at what, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a kingdom still. So kings do, and you look at what the, the type of punishment that gets meted out right. in countries all over the Middle East. We are horrified by, but I don't know how we try to export our value system on, on places. And what do you then hey, just Kelly, don't deal it's with? It's a them. longer debate. Come on back. And you got to come on back. Can you still get a flight? Though. Can you still, because this year it's I want another list, picture of you barefoot in the desert. That's the show for today. Told you, lots of good stuff. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. We are in love, folks. Love is in the air. Joe, you, you love it? I'm okay. in love Just with... Just show some love. I'm in love with, uh, with this show. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you've listened this far, give us a rating and a review. That helps other listeners find us. Have a good weekend. We'll meet you back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.